things are more burdensome than the burden of debt. If you know anything about debt, have carried debt, perhaps you're under debt right now, you know what I'm talking about. Debt, especially debt that taxes us to the point where we can't even carry it any longer or we're really close to that point, I mean, just causes great angst, great worry, causes sleeplessness to the point that it can almost debilitate us. Uh, in Canada, we love debt, personal debt, just by the way things are measured and evidence is such. For example, I went on one website, CTV News website, that stated that in 2014, at the end of this year, the average Canadian consumer will be carrying more debt than any time in our history. In fact, about $28,800 each, going up about $1,100 over the last year. This is debt outside of mortgage debt. So this is credit card debt, house, or, uh, excuse me, car debt, student loan debt, something like that. So we do know a lot about debt uh, in our country, certainly. Uh, on the flip side, there's nothing better. If you've ever paid off a debt that's been burdening you and you pay it off, there's something very freeing in that. There's something very restful that comes by way of that. Sleeplessness turns into great sleep. Worry, no longer there. There's a freedom to that. So we like when we take care of it. We feel burdened when we're under it. Yet ironically, even though it feels good not to have debt and all the things connected to not having it, as we go into our text today, what we're going to see Paul continue on in, in chapter 13 is that he's going to write of a debt that we not only are to have, but we are to have it with great joy, and it's going to be ours forever. Now, before I take you to the first verse, verse 8, and prove that to you, I want to remind you of last week's text. It couldn't have been more practical. Last week's text was Paul saying that God raises up, institutes authority over us, specific civil authority, political authority, to do two things primarily. One is to provide justice for those who break the law. We saw that. And secondly, they are to administrate or minister the revenue that comes in, namely our taxes, to take care of the city or the country, province, or something in between that they govern over. That that's their charge. And what is our call as people who follow Jesus are being transformed in the renewing by the renewing of our minds as we present ourselves as living sacrifices is to honor those in authority over us. Respect, pay what is owed them, whether it's taxes, respect, revenue, honor, anything like that. In fact, the big dilemma, and I didn't talk about this at all last week, the big dilemma at the time of Jesus in connection with taxes specifically wasn't so much the payment of the taxes per se. The issue was, who are we honoring? See, to certain individuals, they felt, look, if I'm taking my money and I'm giving it to Caesar or Rome specifically, Caesar specifically, Rome in general, then I'm honoring that and therefore I'm dishonoring God. And therefore, I don't know if I should give my money to Caesar. Maybe I should just give it to the temple, take care of the priesthood, and so forth. That led to questions like the one we looked at last week posed to Jesus. Should we pay taxes or not? But the issue was an honoring issue. Is my allegiances being divided? That was the major issue. And what Jesus says, and what we saw last week is, no, you're, you're, you're not divided in terms of your honor because God raises up those in authority over us. And so paying your taxes to them is honoring God through them in the same way that God rules us through them. You can see verse seven, just to remind you where we 
end it off, Paul says in verse 7 of chapter 13, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. All of this is summed up actually in the first part of verse 8. Verse 8 sums up everything preceding it, at least the last seven verses, when Paul says, owe no one anything. There it is. Going back to verse 7, owe no one anything. If you have honor and respect or taxes or revenue to pay, don't owe it. Pay it off. But then he gives one exception, which is the next part of the verse. So it's one exception. There is one thing that you owe, and you will always owe, that you are indebted to. You can see it there, except, here's the exception, except to love each other. There it is. We are indebted to one thing, called to be indebted to one thing, and that one thing is to love each other. But why? Why? Maybe I don't want to be in debt to somebody else. Maybe I don't want to pay love. Why am I indebted to another? It's that question that leads to a real simple outline this morning that is all geared toward answering it. I'm actually going to ask a number of why questions, but let's begin here. Why am I indebted to love? Here's the outline if you like taking notes. Three reasons. We are obligated to love. In fact, we're called to it. We'll see that. Number two is we are commanded to love. And then the third, the time to love is at hand. So we are obligated to love, commanded to love, and the time to love is at hand. Let's hit them one by one first. We're obligated to love. As I've already said, Paul coming out of verse 7, where has come out of verse 7 where he's just instructed that we carry no outstanding debt with things like revenue, taxes, honor, and respect. Now he says that we are obligated to love each other, a debt that needs to be seen as never-ending. We can't pay it off. Douglas Moo, a commentator, great commentator on the book of Romans, gives us some hint on why that is when he writes, we will never be in a position to claim that we have loved enough. We will never arrive at a time where we go, well, I paid that bad boy off. I'm done now. That thing that we are called to, that indebtedness to love, is something that we can't pay off. We are obligated to pay it, and it will forever be that way. Love is something we owe, we can't pay it back, and therefore, like I have said, we are indebted forever to it. Now, before asking another why question, being, well, why am I indebted to it? You know, says you, why am I indebted to it? Before I get to that question, let me kind of put the brakes on here and kind of exit a little bit and just do it and address the question that comes out of this verse, at least from some. And that is, is it wrong to take on any debt at all, speaking of monetary debt? Paul does write, right, the beginning of verse 8, owe no one anything, with only one exception. The only thing that you can owe is love. So all other debt, some people conclude, coming out of verse 8, people like, good people, well-known individuals, Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, Uh, Charles Spurgeon himself used this verse and said, all debt is wrong. So let's ask the question, is that true? Is all debt wrong? Speaking of mortgages, student loans, car loans, credit card debt, whatever it is, is it wrong altogether? Like I said, some people that are very prominent hold that it is using this verse as proof text 
Now, although I agree that living without debt is ideal, I don't agree that carrying certain debt is altogether wrong for a number of reasons. First, because that's not what Paul in context is addressing here. The context of verse 7, as I've said a couple of times now, is don't withhold paying taxes and revenue as well as honor and respect to those in authority. Owe no one anything. That's really clear. The context is really clear. However, in that, Paul is not stating that taking out a, out a loan of some sort is wrong. And besides, any issue that comes with taking out a loan only arises when payments aren't made, not in the loan itself. Additionally, but more importantly, I think, if any and all debt is wrong, then you would, then you would have to conclude that any lending would be wrong as well. For doing so would make you party to something that was forbidden by God. So if having a loan is wrong, I'm certainly not going to give you a loan if that's wrong. Yet, notice what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 42. He instructs just the opposite. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. I'm camping here, by the way, and taking this detour, hitting this topic, because I think it's so relevant to us. I believe this is an important and relevant topic. So let me give some very basic and general guidelines to the topic of borrowing and lending from a biblical standpoint. Now, before I hit them one by one and give you some of these guidelines, here's what you also need to know, important to this topic. In the scriptures, when the topic of borrowing and lending is talked about, most often it's connected to something very personal in nature and a loan that comes out of some sort of quandary or dilemma or plight. So the context most often is you're going through a difficult time and you come to someone that you know and you ask to borrow some money. That's the context. So some of what I'm about to talk about doesn't fit certain situations and contexts, specifically institutional lending and borrowing. But I think there are some overlaps and I think there are some things that are helpful even to a situation like that. So let me give you a couple of guidelines. First, if you are on the borrowing side, pay the loan back. Seems real basic. Not as common today as we would think. But if you are borrowing and borrowing on the, or on the borrowing side, pay it back. The psalmist writes this. The wicked borrows but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. So that's number one. A second guideline. If you're on the lending side, Number one, expect to receive nothing back. And number two, charge no interest. Now remember the context. The context is a situation where someone is hurting. Someone's going through a tough time. They have a plight. They've come to you as a friend or someone they know. They come to the church perhaps. Jesus instructs this, this way in Luke 6, 35. Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be the sons, be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So let's put this in an example. Someone in your community group is going through a difficult time. They find you. They know you perhaps have the means or they come to the whole group. This has happened on occasion. You're going through a difficulty. Uh, something's happened to you. Health situation, maybe you've lost your job, you don't have a way to pay the rent, no food in the cupboard, whatever it is, and they come to you. Give. First instruction, give. Second instruction, expect nothing in return. Especially don't expect 
interest if the loan is paid back. They may come to you and go, look, I'm hard up right now. I need a thousand bucks. I'll pay it back. And perhaps they do. But Jesus' instruction, if you have the means and you give yourself to discerning the situation, give. Expect nothing in return, but certainly don't take advantage of someone's plight. Now, the question is, before we move back into our text, do I think it's wrong to charge interest in all cases? Well, the answer to that is no. We must consider the situation. For example, I've known parents who've had great means able to finance a kid's education, a kid's car, perhaps even a kid's home, and a, and a child comes to the parents, and perhaps the parents has, a, has extended a loan at an interest rate, but an interest rate less than a person would have if they went to an institution of some sort, a bank or what have you. Do I think it's wrong for a parent to charge interest, for example? No, I don't think it's wrong. In fact, I think that sometimes that's very helpful and it also teaches some kids some things. So I don't think, think it's wrong. But again, remember the context of what we're talking about here. Situations where we as Jesus followers don't take advantage of another person's plight, helping them in as much as we can. Are there times as well where we may say no to a loan? Certainly. Your kid comes and wants a Jaguar, okay? Maybe that's not a good loan. Hey, you got a verse, I've asked. You need to lend, right? And expect nothing in return. No, right? There's certain wisdom, I think, that comes like, no, 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 no. All right? We need to understand that as well. Big topic, talk about it more in your community groups. Push back in your community groups. If you got issues with me, my email is chad at wchurch.ca. <laughs> Enough of that. Back to our verse. We are to love, for we are obligated to love, and we will forever carry that obligation. Now, I said I'm going to ask a lot of why questions. So let me get back to this one. Why are we obligated to love? Leads to my second point. For we are commanded to love. More specifically, we are obligated to love and therefore commanded to love, for love fulfills the law. And that's why we're commanded to love. Look at verse 8, halfway through, we'll read through verse 10. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. This is pop quiz time. I want you to think about our whole study of the book of Romans, those of you who have been around for the last millennia. And as we've been going through this great letter, there's a couple of key themes that we've hit. Paul hits more specifically a number of times. One is the key theme of law. One is the key theme of grace. He talks about law a lot. He talks about grace a lot. Now, when we take law, let's look at them one at a time. What is the issue that we have with the law? Specifically, what is the issue if we try to attain our salvation by the law, by the keeping of it? Well, two main issues. One is we can't. Why is that? Well, because the law weakened by the flesh cannot carry out to its fulfillment the necessity of it. That's Romans 8 verse 3. So when you take the law and you party it up with our bodies, we can't keep it. That's number one. The second issue that comes, that comes with the law in terms, of, in terms of keeping it is when we hear of a law 
and the carrying out is given to it, our natural tendency, at least oftentimes, is to break it. So when we take the law, when we hear of a law, and we again couple it with ourselves, not only do we not have the ability to carry out to its greatest fulfillment, we actually want to break it. We have that in us. That's an issue. Paul talks about that quite a bit. So what do we need then? If that's the issue with the law, when it's brought to us, what's our need? What's the, what's, what's the only out? Well, the only out is grace. Law plus us necessitates grace. But here's the deal. What's the issue with grace when we bring it on to us and partner up with it? Big issue. Romans chapter 6 talks about how when we have grace, couple it with us, we allow it to give excuse to sin. That's the issue. Both have issues. Law, grace, with us, both create issues. So here, what's the solution if that's the problem? Well, the solution is the law. The solution to the law was grace. The solution to the grace that we have received is the law. What kind of law? The law of love. See, here's what we need to remember, and there's a big misnomer when it comes to us and the law in this age of grace, and that is we are no longer obligated to the law. It's not true. It's bad teaching. We're not saved by the law, but we are obligated to the law, and the law that we are obligated, again, is the law of love. That is what our call is. And what is that law of love? How does it get exemplified? How does it get fleshed out? Well, God shows us what the law of love is, at least in one example that Paul gives us in verse 9, and that is showing us what we need to do in regards to some of the Ten Commandments that he, that he records in verse 9. Paul gives us four of the Ten Commandments there. God wants us to live this out. Paul says this. Look at verse 9. He says, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. But here's the thing. These are four out of the Ten Commandments. But the very fact that Paul mentions only four and summarizes all of them with and any other commandment, as you see in verse 9, shows us that we're not to get bogged down in each of them. For that's not the point. Rather, Paul wishes to emphasize one great truth, and that is that all of these commandments are brought together under one great summarizing law, and that is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We are to live under that law. We are obligated to that law. Something else that's really important to note, looking at those four commandments in verse 9, and perhaps you picked it up, every single one of them is a negative command. It's a do not. You shall not, you shall not, you shall not. Yet, when we understand that each of these falls under a call to love one another, then we can conclude rightly that there is not one do not command in the whole bunch. There is no do not because they all fall under the larger and positive do command, which is love your neighbor as yourself. See, Westside, every negative command is at its root, a positive one in reality. Just noting these four commands, you shall love and therefore not commit adultery but preserve the sacredness of marriage. You shall love and therefore not murder but help your neighbor be truly alive and well. You shall love and not steal anything belong, that belongs to your neighbor but rather protect his or her possessions. 
You shall love and as a result not covet what belongs to your neighbor, but rejoice in the fact that it is theirs. Before moving on, let me address a possible question that some of you may have coming out of this that we haven't addressed yet, and that is, I understand why I need to love God in response to what he has done for me, but why all others? I mean, Jesus is the one that hung on the cross. I get why I need to love him, but why is it important that I love everyone else? Really important question. Let me give you three of many answers to it, three big ones, and I want to make sure that we get them. Here's the first. Our love for God, or excuse me, our love for others is inextricably linked with our love for God. So linked are they that when Jesus is posed the question of all the commandments laid out in the Old Testament scriptures, which is the greatest? Jesus responds, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend or rest all the law and the prophets. So connected are the two that Jesus could not talk about a love of God without talking about a love for each other. He couldn't do it. Because they're intertwined. I mean, simply put, we can't talk about loving our creator God and somehow allow that to not love the very good of that creator God, namely us. Doesn't make sense. That's like saying to a, a parent, I really like you, can't stand your kids. You ain't going to be hanging out with that parent too much, right? Unless the parent's a nut job of some sort, really doesn't dig his kids either, right? But we can't say we love God and then reject, right? Reject the very good of his creation, us. Secondly, our love for God is evidenced in our love for others. Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. But the thing about our love that Jesus calls us to is that it's not to be reserved for just those close to us, but for all people, namely even those who are hard to love. For it's in that where our love goes from being merely human to divine. It's a divine love. It's a love that evidences that the love of God by way of his Holy Spirit has been poured out into our hearts. Jesus says as much, again in the Sermon on the Mount, if you love those who love you, what reward, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? In other words, there are people that make no claim to being followers of God that do that. You're called to something more. I'm called to something more. And in fact, we are enabled to something more again because of the spirit that now dwells in us. A third reason why we are called to love others is because it serves as an internal litmus test. What do I mean by that? Well, John in 1 John chapter 2 writes this. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. The whole purpose of the book of 1 John is, it's, it's a letter given to us that's full of tests, 
things that we can look at as being in our lives or not being in our lives to assure us. Key word in the book of 1 John is know. Here's how you can know. Here's how you can know. Here's how you can know. Us claiming to be in the light, followers of Jesus, lovers of God, and yet turning around and going, I can't stand that person. I hate them. Is a litmus test. Is a litmus test for us. It doesn't mean that there won't be times where we go through difficulty, incredible difficulty. I've talked about this in the past. But at least there needs to be an inkling inside of us that goes, I need to move towards reconciliation of some sort. At least I get to the point where I can confess before God I really have a difficult situation. This is a hurting situation and a hard situation, but at least there's an inkling towards that. It's an internal evidence that there's a transformation taking place. I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not saying all of it happens overnight. In fact, most often it doesn't, which is an evidence of God's grace because God's grace helps us day by day, moving towards that. But it is an internal test, something evidencing to us. It's It's a gracious gift where the Spirit says to our spirit whether we're saved or not. Because of the things that are going on, this transforming that is taking place, there are many other layers to the answer to this question, but I'll leave it at that for now. So we are indebted to loving each other, for we are obligated to love, for love fulfills the law. Here's the third thing that I would say under this question of why we are indebted to love, and that is, for the time to love is at hand. The time now is to love. Take a look at verses 11 to 14. I'll read it and then I'm going to double back and hit it bit by bit. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. There's a ton in there, so let's hit them one by one. That first phrase, first two words in verse 11, besides this, speaks back to what we've just walked through, meaning besides being indebted to love for it fulfills the law, we are to love for time is short. Verse 11 and verse 12 have an end time vibe to them, an eschatological vibe to them. You see some phrases in there that would give you that sense. The hour has come. Salvation is nearer. The day is at hand. This has led some people to conclude that Paul is writing under the idea that Jesus is about to come and come soon. You can read about that. Many commentators suggest that, or at least some of them do. I don't agree. I don't think that's what he has in mind specifically. Paul writes on end times in several different places in greater detail, so I don't think he's made a mistake. However, that being said... I do think the vibe here is intentional to some degree because the reality is we are all living in a critical time. Time is short. If not for the end of the age, for you and me. Hate to be that guy this morning. Welcome here. Good to have you. Make you feel really encouraged. Time is short. Time is critical. 
Jesus, here's the fact of the matter. Jesus may not come back in the next 40 years, but there's a really good chance that I'm going to see him in the next 40. And at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter when the final end of the age is because we all have a final end to ours. So the hour is now. Salvation is nearer. The time is critical. And we need to keep that in mind here. We are closer today than yesterday to experiencing the full measure of our salvation. And it's with that reality as being very true for the writing at this time as it is today that should lead us to do a few things. The first thing that it should do is that it should waken us up. Just take a look again at verse 11. Paul says exactly that when writing, besides this, you know the time and the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. Westside, it's time to give ourselves to a bucket list that's going to matter 100 years from now. I'm all for you bungee jumping, okay? I'm all for that. You want to bungee jump? That bad boy's on your bucket list. Bungee jump. Great. You want to go visit some places? Great. You want to eat something you've never eaten before? Great. You want to cheat? Great. But can I tell you about that bungee jumping or that place you're going to visit? It doesn't matter 100 years from now. But there are some things that will. Some things that will. I'm not down on bucket lists. Great movie, by the way. I'm not down on bucket lists. Just as long as your bucket list is full of some things that will matter for time and eternity. Because time's short. I may have 40 years left. I may got four minutes left. Time is short. We need to wake up. It grieves me, and I use that word purposely, It grieves me when I hear about a Jesus follower's bucket list that has no ministry at all in it. You're an eternal being. An eternal eternal being. This here, but a vapor, a mist, like grass, here today, gone tomorrow. We forever. Forever. And that fact should wake us up. That's Paul's point. Wake up. We are to wake up. But not only should it waken us up, it should encourage us to. Take a look at verse 11 and verse 12. Halfway through verse 11, Paul says this, For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. That's hopeful language. That's hopeful language. If you know Jesus, that's hopeful language. In fact, the prophet Isaiah prophesied about this very fact in Isaiah chapter 60 when he wrote, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. This is like John chapter 1 where light invades the darkness. And people come to the light. And we're closer to seeing Jesus today than we were an hour ago or yesterday, and we'll be closer tomorrow, and that should fire us up, man. We're going to see Jesus. We're going to see him. We're going to see him. 
This is encouraging stuff to us. That's Paul's point too. Wake up, be encouraged. Wake up, be encouraged. Time is short. Make the most of the day while it's the day. Don't say months later, the harvest. The time is now. The time is now. Give ourselves, give yourself, give myself to that which will matter forever. The third thing that it should do to us is that should, it should move us. Take a look halfway through verse 12, and I'll read to the verse, uh, end of the verse, verse, or end of the text, excuse me, verse 14. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. It should move us to do what? Well, love others. Love others as Christ has loved us. Why? Because the time is short for people who don't know Jesus. Same length of time. Same length of time. As I've said over the years, 97% of the people in Vancouver don't know Jesus in as much as we can determine. 97. Time is short. We need to love on them. We need to tell them about Jesus, continue to make Jesus known. We need to love on them. We should be moved to this. But in addition to this, what Paul also says in these verses that, is that it should move us to pursue our sanctification, our maturity, our Christ-likeness. See, in these last verses, Paul is exhorting us all to lay aside our sinful practices and with the help of the Holy Spirit, move on in our maturity, our sanctification. Cut off that which is hindering us, cast it away and put on Jesus. Put on the armor of light. Go from dark to light. Go from, go from, from night to day. We are to give ourselves to this. This call for growth is seen in that contrast between day and night and light and dark. And because followers of Jesus are people of the day and light, we are to practice things of the light and day and cast off the things of the dark. When you look at verse 13 specifically, I want you to notice that there are six different activities called works of darkness listed there. There are actually three couplets, really important, three couplets that make up this list of six. It's not an exhaustive list. It's a representation of all works of darkness in the same way that the commands, it contrasts the commands earlier. These represent what God wants for us. These represent deeds of darkness. As one author put it, and I quote him, these vices comprise the deeds of darkness, often even performed in the dark, but certainly always encouraged by the prince of darkness. I want you to notice these, uh, these, uh, this list spe uh, specifically. Like I said, there's six items mentioned there, three couplets, meaning they go together. Uh, and I think for a reason. The first couplet, if you look in verse 13, is orgies and drunkenness. Inasmuch as we know, probably connected to temple worship, uh, where there is temple prostitution, um, where alcohol was presented really to um, bring forth the spirits it was believed. And so there's drunkenness and orgies all connected to temple worship and temple prostitution. And so that's why that couplet is together. The last couplet 
is quarreling and jealousy. You see it at the end of the verse. I think we get that. We know, we know what quarreling and jealousy is all about. I think for the most part, I think we know what orgies and drunkenness are for the most part, but it's the one in the middle that I want to make sure that we spend at least a couple of minutes on. I feel called to do that. Uh, it'd be very tempting to just skate over verse 13, but I think it would be bad teaching and preaching to do so, especially in the context of this ministry in 2014. We are called there to not give ourselves to sexual immorality and sensuality. What, what does that mean? What do those words refer to? Well, sensuality, defined as indulge, indulgences of the senses, in context here with this couplet, and in this couplet is speaking of sexual and physical senses. It's really one of the most adamant texts in context, coming against those who love to hold on to things like oral sex, anal sex, hand jobs, heavy petting, etc., as being okay. Fornication is wrong. Some people say everything else is okay. This would speak directly against that, which leads to sexual immorality. What is sexual immorality? Just as a shameless plug, I've spoken on this topic a lot over the years. I'm giving literally seconds to it this morning. I've spoken on this topic in this series on Romans when we were in Romans chapter 1 back in the day. Sex in the city classes, I've spent much time talking on it. I've spoken on this topic a lot in our questions that you ask series. So there are very, there's a lot of layers to this discussion that I'm not going to hit. But I encourage you, I encourage you to go online, download, find some of the information that is there. But what is sexual immorality? Sexual immorality from a biblical standpoint is all sensual and sexual practices that take place outside of a marriage relationship. Which begs the question, what is marriage as defined in the scriptures? Marriage is a covenant relationship between a man and a woman gathered, or excuse me, entered publicly by way of vows before God. Witnesses and depending upon the epoch and era constituted and registered with the local government. What do I mean by that? Well, I do marriages all the time, all the time. And in every marriage situation, I always say this, when we come to the point in the ceremony where vows are given, in my mind, that is what marries you. Vows are stated publicly before the witnesses and before God, speaking of this covenant that you are now entering. You make the vows publicly. And again, depending upon the context and the situation and the era and the place in which you live, you enter that covenant by registering with the local authority that God has raised up. I know there are some that say, no, I'm married in God's eyes. No, you're not. You're not. It is also interesting that people who talk about being married in God's eyes, when that relationship ends and they break it off, they don't talk about being divorced in God's eyes, which is interesting and telling. Covenant marriage relationship begins with a public declaration when a man and a woman come together. Paul says here to us, we need to cast off that which is in the 
night, which is in the dark. Why is that so important? Because the list that we have here west side is a list that we've seen all the way back in Romans chapter 1, which describe those who have rejected God and chosen creation over creator. We are to be people of the light, people of the day. But the beauty as we end this time is that Paul doesn't simply tell us what not to do, but what to do as a replacement. You see the replacement? In verse 12, he says, put on the armor of light. Don't just cast things off, put on the armor of light. And in verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul uses this language all the time. A couple of verses that I'll quickly go through and end our time this morning with Galatians 3:27 For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. It's no longer you who live but Christ lives in and through you. When God looks down on you, he sees perfection because you are in Christ. The righteousness of Christ has been put on you, grafted, planted on you. You've put on Christ. This leads then to Paul's instruction in Colossians 3 where he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love. That takes us right back to our text, which binds everything together in perfect harmony See, the sense here, and it's a very real and true sense, is that the call for us who have already put on Christ is that we are to continue to put him on daily. It's that language of getting up in the morning and putting on the armor of Christ. Put it on daily. Put it on daily. This comes by way of the disciplines where we feed the spirit. The disciplines of what? What you're doing now is a discipline. Where the word is taught, where we worship, where we pray, where we take part in the communion meal, where we leave from here and we spend time in the word or we come on a delve after spending the day in fasting, where we, where we have times of solitude, where we give, where we serve. Those are all the disciplines and what the disciplines do is they feed the spirit. They feed the spirit, feed the spirit. But at the same time, we are to cast off those things that feed the flesh. That's why in verse 14, as our text ends, it says, don't give allowance for the things of the flesh. Don't gratify it. Give no provision for it. So what we do is we feed the spirit, feed the spirit, and we starve the flesh. In very practical ways. Where you go, what you look at, what you read, what you listen to, what you participate in, you kill it. And you starve it to death. Keep on feeding the Spirit. Be people of the light. I don't know my, how much cash you got, okay? I have no idea. Don't know how rich you are. Don't know the size of your portfolio, the real estate holdings you have, how much money you got between your mattresses. I don't know. I don't know what's in store for you. You may become a bedillionaire, okay? S stay here if you become a bedillionaire, right? Stay here. Help us out, right? Give generously as an act of worship. I don't know. Thank you. Thank you very much. I don't know what's in store for you. I don't know what kind of freedom that way um, and how it's going to look in your life. But here's what I do know. There will be one debt, one debt, West Side, as followers of Jesus that we are never to free ourselves from, so to speak. But here's the thing. Not only are we given this debt, we are empowered to serve it. In fact, we're resourced to pay it. Isn't that a beautiful thing?
It's like God says, here's the debt, pay it, and I'll give you the ability to do it. It's awesome. It's a great, wonderful debt to have. Great, wonderful debt to have. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we love you because your word tells us and teaches us that you became poor so that we would become rich. That you gave up what was rightfully yours so that we could be the inheritors of the heavenly places. And now, Jesus, you call us as your followers to do the same to keep on paying things forward, that as we receive your grace, we extend it to others. Receive grace, extend it to others. Receive grace, extend it to others. And in addition to that, to, to cast off those things that you came and were pierced for. Kill those things, destroy them, starve them out, and give ourselves to those things that are going to move us along in our Christ-likeness so that we can look forward to that day where we will see you face to face, and some of us very soon, to hear from you, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. That is our cry. That is our desire. That is our cry and our desire individually and corporately. We want to make you known by extending that grace that you've given us to us to the city in which we live. So help us, help us. I pray for some of us that have taken advantage of your grace. I, I pray for much grace to be received in a, a time of repentance and reconciliation today. I pray for those who have never received your grace today. I pray that they've come to Jesus. I pray for those of us who are walking in good standing with you right now, that this is just only a joy-filled time. I just pray that we would worship you with hearts that are just leaning in because of what we received, have received through you. So I pray to that end. I pray that this time of response would be sweet time where you would be pleased and we would be strengthened. Praying for all of these in Jesus' great name. Amen. Would you rise as we go into a time of response? Please, Westside.